0: Welcome to Build. This is Maggie. Today, I have Ben Foster on the show. He's the chief product officer at Whoop. He's also the co-author of a book called Build What Matters that's all about building great products with customer-centric product visions. And we get into what it takes to actually put a framework that you might learn from a book into practice at a company. There is, of course, so much advice out there, including on a podcast like this one about how to build products more effectively. So I wanted to talk to someone who had gone deep on both. I hope you enjoy it. Ben, welcome to the show.
1: Hey, it's so great to be here, thanks.
0: So we're gonna get into something that I think a ton about specifically with the show, which is how do you actually put advice into practice? But first, I wanted to start by grounding in a specific type of work that a product leader does, uh, and that's product vision. So we're gonna use that today as our example. It's also something that I know comes up a ton when I'm talking about strategy or about motivating teams, um, a lot of which ends up falling on the, the product function. So you wrote a book effectively on the topic. So in your words, what is a product vision and what role does it play in in building products or in the product development process?
1: Yeah, sure thing. You know, it's something that a lot of people are really confused by because it gets conflated with mission statement, it gets conflated with strategy, et cetera. And I think of a product vision as really laying out the future customer experience that you're looking to create that will hopefully give them a you know, 10x outcome from what they've been accustomed to historically. Something that's really bold, something that's very forward-looking, but most importantly, really rooted in the customer experience.
0: What is the difference between a vision and a strategy?
1: I've always described it this way. I think of the vision as like planting a flag at point B where, you know, you're standing at point A today and you're saying, guys, this is where we're going to go. You know, this is what we're about. This is what, when we're going to know that we arrived at the destination. The strategy is more like the path that you take to get there, given the realities of the business and the complications that you sort of have to, you know, overcome along the way. So, you know, for example, you know, maybe a vision is we're going to apply, Artificial intelligence to go solve some new problem in, in a particular space that you know has been somewhat antiquated for a while. And that's all great, but how do you go about creating this AI solution? You know, you're going to have to have machine learning, you're going to have to have a training data set that's going to allow you to get that, you know, to get that there. Where are you going to get that data from? You know, you, maybe you need to get funding along the way. How are you going to demonstrate to investors that you're going to actually get the traction that you need at those different stages? So you may not take the most direct path to get there, and I see the strategy as like those critical kind of like milestones, those markers that you need to get to along the way but that you have confidence in that if we do these things, it will in fact actually get us to the vision that we've set for ourselves.
0: Because I wanted to ask that because it often seems to come hand in hand and there's sometimes confusion between what is the mission that we're on and then how do we get there? And what are the choices that we're making wrapped up in between both of those? So I think it's helpful to kind of understand at least in this context, what the distinction is. So then my next question would be, who sets them and at what level? Because we, it's a bit of a leading question. Because I know, I, I'm assuming that you would want to have sort of a, a team wide product vision. But then there's also, if your product's big enough, sort of sub teams or sub areas that you might want to have some kind of flag planting um, moment. And I'm just curious when you think about it, like, are there product visions happening at all levels? Is it really just supposed to be at the top level? And how do you think about that?
1: It's interesting because I've had my own journey of, coming to understand this, I think, over time as I've evolved my own career from being an individual contributor to being a product leader. And it was really interesting, this transition that I had because I wrote the book, Build What Matters, which is really about articulation of a product vision and then making sure that people are, are actually adhering to it. And what I assumed when I started writing the book, along with my co-author, Rajesh, Is that it all really applied primarily and and almost exclusively at the top level within product or, you know, in some smaller companies where the head of product is in effect the founder, the CEO, that it applies really primarily at their level. And what I've come to understand, I think, in working at a larger company is that if you do a really good job of establishing the right vision and providing it at the right level, you ideally create opportunities for individuals within the team to establish their own vision for the part that they own as well. And, you know, it's almost like an indication of success in the organizational structure that you've created that kind of like capability for those people within the team to establish their own. Where, you know, I might come up with a vision that says, you know, at, at Whoop, part of what we're trying to do is to foster community and to allow people who are fellow Whoop customers to connect with one another and learn from one another, etc., you know, So that could be a big part of the overall vision. But if I sort of stop it at the right level, and I don't go too deep with exactly what that's going to look like, then I create the space for the product management team that's responsible for that community strategy to then come up with their own vision of what that looks like and how the different kinds of pieces fit together and how they can kind of like craft that that customer journey that they're looking for down the road. So I think it's both a bit of both, you know?
0: So that we talked about this a little bit before we cut up, but the question I kept coming up with in my head was, where do they stop? And I think what I'm trying to get at is, how do you maintain or foster that autonomy on the team level, but still have what they, especially if you're a big company and there's multiple teams with maybe multiple visions, how do you make sure that that you end up building a coordinated product while still having these sort of separate visions? Because I would imagine it. It doesn't sound like what you're doing is sort of reading every single vision and making sure it's exactly what you want, unless that, that is how you do it. But I'm curious, like, how do you think about that part?
1: I think you're totally right with the stopping point really mattering a lot. And maybe another way of framing that is like, what's the level of granularity that a vision should go into, right? Like, if it's, if it's way too specific, then you give no license for creativity, or the ability for there to be autonomy for the teams. It's kind of like, I've already told you exactly what you need to do. Now just go do these things. What I see most companies doing is not necessarily that I see it actually in the other side of the spectrum, which is that there's just like too little clarity that's there. And so usually it's not the problem that there's too much clarity of vision. It's that there's kind of like not enough or they'll think that they've stopped because well, we've already defined our mission statement. So we're good on that front, you know, and, and it's like you know, take Google's mission you know, of like, you know, do no evil or, you know, values kind of statements like that that are like so subjective and open to interpretation that the reality is different kinds of, you know, people within the team could go completely different directions. And the example that we used in the book was, you know, we, we sort of imagined what it would be like at Tesla if Tesla, you know, their their mission was like, we're going to make it so you don't have to go to a gas station anymore to train, you know, with your car. Like, okay, that's cool. But, There's a lot of different ways you could try to make that happen. Are you trying to make a nuclear-powered car? Are you trying to make another system that can gas your car while you're driving? Are you trying to build, you know, a battery that lasts forever? You know, and, and I think that if everybody is on the same page about exactly how you're gonna go about making that happen, that's really important because then you can sort of like subdivide it into different teams and not have a bunch of different teams all thinking about what they're trying to accomplish in radically different ways. Because that misalignment can cause like a lot of problems. So I think that it needs to be specific enough, right, on the one hand, but it also needs to be not so specific that you kind of like create the space for the people who are closest on the ground to come up with their own perspective and to share with the rest of the business what they believe is best. Because they're the ones who are closest to the technology. They're the ones that are closest to the customer they're the ones who are in the trenches having to deal with the technical debt that's out there. You know, they're the ones who have the capacity to understand the stakeholder needs and how they all fit together. And so, you know, hopefully you kind of like create that space for them to kind of come up with their own stuff, but it means that you have to have the right level of detail around that. And, and the analogy that I've used on this, you know, historically is I always think about, you know, fighting like a major war or something like that. I can think about, you know, world war one or something. And I'm like, you know, there's always generals who are looking at maps And they can think strategically about like, we've got to go take this city. We've got to go take this bridge. It's a really important thing for us to go do. But if they just sort of assumed that their map gave them all the perspective that they need, they'd be totally missing like what's actually happening on the ground. And it's like, hey, it's only half a mile away. Why don't you just go do it? And what they're not respecting is that there's like no man's land. And if you pop your head out of the trench, like you're going to get, you know, it's shot off. And so it's kind of like what you need to say is, here's what I need to do. We need to go take this bridge or this city but I'm not going to tell you about how, you know, you're going to tell me the right kind of timing to make this happen, et cetera, but has got to happen in the next week. Right. And I think that ideally the communication channels from the top of the command down to the bottom of the command are such that everybody understands what's needing to be accomplished and why, but that you're giving the ability for the team to be creative and thoughtful about what they need to do at the same time. It's a hard balance, you know, but it's the thing that we all try to get right
0: the thing, and this sort of gets at the heart of the matter, it's one thing to say, set the mission for the team to go take the hill. And I think that's, a have heard that before. And that's definitely how I think about it too. But it's another thing to say. And then what, let's say you go to the team, and you say, okay, we're going to go take this hill. And then the team says, well, we want to decide which hill we're going to take. Like, why don't you just give us the outcome you're looking for? And this is the thing I, I run into, which is a team thinking that outcome-based product development means just give me a metric and let's ignore growth teams for now, which I think is a more straightforward answer But or example, but like a regular product team, they want to have an outcome, but you're also saying like, yes, this is the metric that we care about or how we're going to measure whether we've taken that hill, but this is also the specific hill that we think is important. So how do you balance like that? How do you articulate that to your team and help them understand that that doesn't mean that they're not autonomous?
1: That's a great question. (laughs) And my response to it would be that I think there are a lot of considerations beyond just hitting a certain metric, right? If it was just hitting a metric, like that's what a sales team does. And they're, they're sort of like mercenary in a lot of ways to just find a way of like, you know, hitting a particular target. And it also means that you can be mercenary back in terms of like, I'll fire you if you miss it. And that's it. You know, it's sort of like, it's very measurable. It's very tangible Ends justify the means to some extent in a lot of ways for getting there with, with rare exception of maybe making commitments, you know, that the product team can't actually support and things like that. Like if you actually sell the product as it is. You know, salespeople are not measured on the impact that they have elsewhere in the organization. And I think that when it comes to product, there's so much more to it than just merely hitting a metric. You know, a great example from Whoop is that our founder is extremely specific and and thoughtful about the brand that we're trying to establish and the commitments that we want to be able to make to our members and the meaningfulness of the investments that we make into product. It's not just, here's a retention target and I want you to hit it. It's like, I want to hit it in a specific kind of way that's consistent with and complementary to this vision that I have for where the company can really you know, can really go. And I think that that's helped to guide a lot of decisions that we have, but it also makes the product management role a lot more nuanced, I think, than it is for other organizations. And I think it's one of the things that I love about product is that reality. But I think we have to sort of like embrace that as product management to ensure that, we are respecting the fact that there are several different ways of of hitting a target hitting a metric and that they're not all created equal. You know one of them may offer far greater extensibility than another one, another one may be more you know lower risk along the way another one may be more measurable along the way another one may be done in such a way that it, that it creates differentiation or competitive advantage where another one doesn't right and so that's why it's so important that we actually have these like theses, you know, around the, the direction we want to go with product, because then it allows everybody else within the team to understand how they're supposed to go about hitting their targets, the constraints that they need to, you know, operate within, etc. And I think it uh, often I've actually seen it generate creativity. And I think we, we all kind of like have learned this probably the hard way, where it's like constraints actually yield creativity, where you think that in theory, they wouldn't, they actually do.
0: But part of what I'm hearing is that you've also spent the time to articulate to the team, why the choices matter. And I think that's maybe what I'm starting to realize or what I'm hearing in in all these conversations that I have is that it's not, it's that if you spend the time to help the team understand why you got to where you got and why those are the right choices and why that choice or that constraint is meaningful, whereas the other ones aren't, that that's what helps them under like it gives them more context around why that mission is the mission, and then helps them be sort of owners, I think, in that outcome. I think maybe what I'm what I'm seeing is that when it doesn't work, or when a team doesn't feel autonomous or ownership over it, that it's because they don't understand or they don't have any of the backing information. And they don't they didn't get go on the journey that that you as the leader went on to actually figure out what that that hill is.
1: I think that's right. I mean, that's why communication is so important. And that's why documentation is really valuable as the company continues to mature. And, and maybe you hire somebody who wasn't there for the all hands meeting in which you reviewed this, you know, three months ago. And yet they're being asked to kind of like follow suit with this thing that, that they weren't there for. So I think that the way in which you operate is to ensure that there is that regular communication and discussion about this stuff that you have opportunities to answer clarifying questions along the way, you know, etc. And rather than Those meetings becoming sort of like approval meetings for designs and things like that. They turn into working sessions where you're kind of like helping to ensure that the direction that the team wants to go as they're trying to hit their metric happens to conform as best as possible to the direction that we're trying to like move as a company.
0: Let's say someone's listening and they want to know how to do this whole process better. So you had the unique experience of, you know, working with tons of different companies as an advisor, writing a book, and then going and being a CPO. And now you, I'm assuming you have to kind of put your money where your mouth is and actually do the stuff that you wrote in the book. So how did you approach actually taking that sort of perfect world advice and like putting it into practice at at Whoop? and you know what what was your strategy for operationalizing that
1: <laughs> it's such a funny story cuz i definitely felt this in spades you know when i moved from being this advisor and this author into kind of going back into operational function and product because of course you know you're going to run into the realities and as an advisor it's really easy to say oh the advice that i've been giving you the whole way through has been perfectly sound you know entirely but you know the reason you're failing at at implementing it or whatever, or the reason that it's not going as well as as you know you'd like, is because you're obviously doing it wrong or you know whatever. And, and of course, so you know because I don't have the visibility into it, right? I think the reality is, you know, it sort of like sets home a little bit when you take that full time position. And so, you certainly I felt the pressure of, hey, I wrote this book, I damn well better put everything that I wrote about in place at the company that I'm at, you know, otherwise, what does that mean about what I wrote? And I think it took a little bit of a combination of a kind of an awkward combination of uh, confidence and humility to recognize that there are certain things that you write about that then maybe don't apply in a specific situation. And so you know there, there's a couple cases of that where I thought, okay, this is definitely the way that every company should approach something, But of course, I start to identify some of the uniquenesses of working at Whoop. And realize that some of those kinds of things, while the principle may be sound, the actual application of it needs to be adjusted a little bit. And I think that that's okay. You know, it took me a little bit of time to kind of like reconcile that. And to say that doesn't mean that what's in the book is necessarily wrong. It just means that you need to interpret it for the environment in which you're in. And I've certainly had that experience, you know, time and time again. And, you know, one of the good examples of that would be, you know, like I said, at a lot of other companies, they don't have enough clarity of vision. And I think that the book kind of covers primarily that case. And then I walked into Whoop where there's an exceptional amount of clarity to vision. And in fact, there's so much clarity of vision that, you know, maybe it's a little bit of the opposite kind of like problem of how do we create the space for some of that creativity within the team to ensure that they're not just sort of, you know, taking orders in terms of the direction that we could potentially go, but that they're empowered to identify new opportunities that we should be considering exploring as well. Like, you know, what are those hills that we should be considering taking, right? And it's an interesting mix of trying to blend both of those methods of working together at a company like that. And that's been my experience so far. So it's, it's been kind of, you know, an interesting one. I'll, I'll say that. And I'd say the other one that's been a little bit challenging for me has just been the realization that it just takes a lot of time. You know, a lot of things that are described in the book are, are things like, you know, oh, spend the time to go craft the vision and document it and do the customer research that's necessary. And it's kind of like, yeah, those are all great. But also the day-to-day work doesn't really go away, right? It's not like the bug doesn't get filed tomorrow anyway, right? And so you still have to be responsive and reactive to the needs of the business along the way. And that's, you know, yielded some long hours and things, but it's something that I think will pay dividends down the road as well.
0: I love that sort of approach. I always think about each of these tools or frameworks as something where you need to learn not just the why of it and what it is and, and when, what like topic it's for, but also under what context is it the appropriate thing to use. And so I think that's sort of what you, what I'm hearing you say is that I have this whole body of work that I put together and then the question is what's what context am I in and like which pieces of this do I want to use? And but I would imagine that you'd have to have a really deep understanding of the framework in order to figure out which one, which pieces of it you want because if not you sort of you could be one of those product people coming in with a system of working that they are using like a hammer that everything always has to fit into.
1: 100%. I you know I see this happen all the time. In fact, I was thinking about doing a talk like a presentation where I took two very smart product thought leaders and showed the headlines of their articles that they published side by side where they're literally saying the exact opposite like thing and they're probably like both right, you know? And I think this is kind of like I don't know if it, I'll call it like the thought leaders dilemma, I guess, which is on the one hand you could be very high level and vague and sort of like theoretical about your recommendations so that it applies unilaterally to everybody. But then it becomes so sort of like abstract. It's like, well, what does that mean? Like, you know, that's great that like, you know, you should be, you know, it's kind of like, we should empower teams. Like, that's great. But like, What does that mean for me at my company, given the people that are there and the personalities involved and the history and the speed at which we're moving and, you know, things like that. And so on the one hand, you could be sort of like very broad and probably very correct, but also not very actionable, right? And on the other hand, you could be highly actionable and say, here's a very specific methodology that I used when I was at this particular company and it worked really, really well. And I want to make sure that everybody else does this at the same time. But then you're running the risk that it doesn't actually apply at the other company. And you know, the case in point of this would be like, you know, once I interviewed a product manager who was coming from Facebook, and I was like, you know, how do you effectively the question was, how do you make decisions about what you're gonna build next or what you're gonna go create next? And they're like, oh, it's really easy. All you do is you take like a huge army of engineers and you just go build a bunch of A-B tests and you run each of these A-B tests for like an hour, because in an hour, obviously you'll get all the data that you need, you know, et cetera, and then you'll know exactly what you need to do. And I'm like, well, that's great when I actually have an army of engineers that I have access to. Also great when I have enough data points because the engagement of the product is so high that I can see within an hour what's going to work and what's not going to. And so, you know, yes, you could, you know, sort of make your decisions as a product manager in your particular arena by doing it that way. But how would like a to B2, c enterprise company apply that same kind of like principle? Like it, it's just utterly irrelevant for them. And the irony was I was at a to B2, c Enterprise company, you know, and and, and so it's like the the person fails the interview because they're just sort of like so accustomed to working in this one particular way, and so I think you know as a thought leader it's really challenging because you want to give something that's broadly applicable. I don't want somebody to read it and then apply it and have it totally backfire on them, but I also want to make sure that it is actually applicable. On the other hand, and and I think that that was what we tried to kind of like be aware of in in writing the book and try to you know put it out there in such a way that it could be approachable and understandable by people, something that they could put in place, but not at the same time so specific that it was likely to backfire in specific you know, situations.
0: And I think that's why, part of the reason why it's so, I don't know if fun is the right word, but it's a topic that comes up all the time between visions and roadmap and strategy because Almost no matter where you are or what company you're at, there's going to be some kind of vision. You've got to have a strategy. You need to figure out what you're going to build. And so, at least we can at least talk about those topics more broadly as okay, these are all the things that we all know we have to do. And then the question I think where it gets really tricky to your point is how you make a choice is where it starts to get really hard to generalize because it's sort of dependent on your business and your strategy. Someone I was talking with a VP of product at Product Board the other day, and we were talking about your investment strategy between tech dead and evolving your product and trans- transformative. And it's sort of like, you know, someone could ask you, what's your balance between like, what's your portfolio strategy on your product team, but it has, it would be completely different depending on your company stage, your size, your market, your competitors. So it's like, I can tell you what I'm doing, but I, without spending 20 minutes explaining my business strategy, it's not going to make any sense.
1: I totally agree with you. Yeah, exactly.
0: What do you think is like... When you're talking to your PM team about this kind of thing and about how they can become product leaders and how to think about these tools, like how do you help them understand when is the right moment to do something like a product vision? like how do you help them think about, okay, so we know we need to have context it's going to be specific to the the company that you're in. you know what's your advice when you're thinking about how to mentor that, that team?
1: Well, I try to be really clear about what we know and what we don't know and where we need to have more clarity. So for example, sometimes the clarity might be at the very basic level of like, what are we working on next? You know, just just give me a roadmap, right? And what happens is just like with anything else in product, you can kind of ask why enough times and it sort of exposes where the gap actually exists. And as you kind of move up the stack by asking why, you'll say like, well, why are these things on the roadmap and the other ones are not? Oh, well, because, you know, these are the issues that we're seeing with our customers. Okay. Well, why are you prioritizing these issues over those issues? Why is this the problem that's most important for us to solve? Oh, well, because, you know, strategically we need to arrive at this particular milestone, uh, within the next 18 months. Okay. Great. Like let's document what all those kinds of things look like. And then you can sort of say, why are those actually the milestones? What's the end point that we're trying to get to here that these are all kind of like ultimately accruing to? What is our differentiation? What is, our, you know, vision for that better customer experience, that better customer journey that we're trying to create in the future, and as you continue to ask that question, you realize where those missing elements actually are. And what I've kind of found to be really interesting, at least at, at Whoop, it's been really helpful to approach it in that direction rather than the other direction. You know, of saying, "Let's all t- hit pause right here." You know, we're just going to stop our work and we're going to say. What is the major problem that we're trying to solve in the market, et cetera? And and part of the reason that that I'm afforded the ability to do that is because we've already arrived at product market fit, right? So like, that's a good example of a case where this is the approach that makes sense at the company that I'm at, given the stage that we are in. But I wouldn't necessarily recommend that for a ten-person shop that's working out of a garage where the founder is still the head of product, and they're still trying to get, you know kind of like figure out their way and and even find their first customer. Like maybe they need to approach things in a little bit of a different way. So that's the way that I've been approaching it with enabling my team to come up with these things as I challenge them on the decisions that are getting made, not because I'm pressure testing. You know their ability to do their job. And obviously you can kind of like evaluate things along the way, but the real reason is because I want to know at what point there is no longer an answer to the question of why. And that exposes the need for there to be some sort of like strategy definition in the organization that I'm running right now. It's a pretty large organization at this point. And so we have levels of hierarchy and things like that. And I think that depending on where that answer you know, falls short, that's where we can kind of identify who it is that we need to hold accountable for answering that question of why. You know, is that my head of product management? Is that, you know, a director of product working on that team responsible for a particular area of the product? Or is it an individual product manager who has a responsibility for a very specific area of the product, but that we still need to have really good answers within that individual arena?
0: I really like that framing, or at least what I'm taking away from this as. It being a good thing when you find that why and not being like a gotcha, I found out what you know, I found out where you went wrong. But it's more like, oh great, we finally, and I think especially in a big org, and I've been on some scaling journeys in, in our org, when and the bigger it gets, the harder it is to sort of figure out where the breaks are. And then I think it's almost as a product leader, it's my favorite thing when I can find one. Cause it's like I now I can finally help because now I know this is the place that we need to focus. And this is the place where we don't have the data or, or, or we're missing a, a connective thing.
1: Yeah, that's right. It's, it's almost like internal discovery, right? Like you know, you're, you're kind of like always doing this. It's, it's a continuous discovery. You know, ter- Teresa's book, you know, continuous discovery habits, right? And it's like, that applies both externally with your customer base, but I think it just applies as a head of product, kind of like doing that discovery within the company to say, wow, you've got this whole thing like mapped out. This is awesome. Now, this is a matter of execution. And if you've got it kind of like really clarified, maybe what I'll do is I'll make sure that the hiring plan staffs up more in your area because I know exactly what kind of like benefits I'm going to get from this. And I'm really sold on the direction that we're going to go. And in other areas, I might say, while I'm really excited about the area that you're working on, I need to see results first, or I need to have more clarity as to where we're actually going to be headed before I decide to invest further into that particular arena. And, you know, my lever as a head of product at whoop is given the scale that we're at now is for the most part, it's actually the hiring plan, right? It's kind of like, you know, that's in a lot of ways where it stops. It's like, let's go invest more here and let's go invest less here. And, you know, that that sort of affords them the ability to think about the direction that they want to go and come up with those answers for their, for themselves but they're only enabled to do that because they actually have a job at whoop. And so the first initial decision is who do we need to even give jobs to what, what, what jobs need to be created. And so you might even create an entire category of product development that didn't exist before. That's where I sort of, you know, finish and sort of like stop to your earlier question on the vision. And then from that point, you hire that person, you say, okay, I want you to you know get grounded, hit the ground running, go deliver a few things, really start to learn about what the customers are looking for on this front and now i'm going to look for you to show me what you believe that you can do and what the opportunities look like you know given the area that you own
0: so k- kind of a little bit along these lines i'm curious you speaking of career development and, and getting better and thinking about different roles so you wrote a book obviously we talked about and i'm curious is writing part of how you or one of the things that you recommend to your team as a way to help grow in their career and how do you think about career development, especially at the higher levels? And like, what role does that kind of work play?
1: So I haven't explicitly told anybody, hey, I think you should write a lot of this down or publish it as an article or write a book or anything like that. It's a really taxing process, I gotta say. Would I go, you know, am I really happy that I did it? Yes. Would I go do it again? Probably not. It was a sort of very helpful thing for me to write things down though. And I think that this is so true with product in general, right? With, you know, you're, you're talking about anything in the abstract and it's really easy in your own head to think that all these things make sense. It's in the practice of trying to communicate it to somebody else that it forces you to reconcile some of the gaps in your own point of view. You know, I, I've always used the analogy of, it's like recounting a dream. You know, you wake up in the morning and you're like, oh, I had this like dream and I'm gonna tell you about it. And in the beginning, you're like, it totally makes sense, right? It's only as you're describing it, you're like, actually, I don't really know how I got there, but don't, don't never mind that. Or, you know, then it transitioned to this other thing. And I don't really know that that makes sense. But anyway, you know, now it was like, you know, 10 years later and you're kind of like, wait, what happened there? And I think the same thing is true in writing anything down, whether that's a product strategy where it may make sense in your head, but then you write it down and you're kind of like scratching your head along the way. And you're like, oh crap, actually, I don't really have a good answer for how we would go from here to there. I guess I have more, more thinking to do on that front. And so, it's helpful because obviously you can share with others and that's you know a lot of the reason that i decided to write the book but the real benefit i think kind of came for me personally in that as i had to describe things i had to deal with the reality that some of these ideas were half baked and it forced me to think about how i could further bake them and i think it just made my own it just made me stronger in terms of doing it and i think that that was probably the one of the best career development activities for myself that I ever really had was kind of like forcing myself to put these things down on paper in such a way that I knew it could be scrutinized by somebody else. And, you know, you hate to get some sort of a, you know, a two-star review on Amazon because somebody's like, nah, this doesn't work. It's, you know, it's wrong. Or I didn't agree with this sentiment. And so it, it kind of forces you to have to think about that. And I think that that kind of accountability for producing something that was high quality was just really helpful for me because normally I don't have as many forces applied to me about sort of upping my own game when it comes to product other than obviously just kind of like business outcomes in my role today
0: yeah i I think about that a lot every time i do a conversation like this it's a chance to say okay well can i actually articulate what the heck i've been doing for the last several years and and anyway articulate how you know how we take on a topic so yeah i think it's been in such a cheat code but i'm always curious to hear from other people who've done it if it if and how it, it helped them so my last question: You have seen I was sort of I took a spin through your LinkedIn, which is quite long with all the companies that you've been an advi- advisor to, and so I wanted to know what are the top mistakes that you just saw product teams falling like the the traps they fell into over and over again. If you could say just to all product teams, you know, just don't whatever you do, either do these three things or just don't do these three things. Like, what were those themes?
1: You know, it's funny. Actually, the first chapter of the book is the top 10 dysfunctions of product management. And it's sort of, you know, honestly taken from a lot of my experiences, either in, you know, operational roles myself that I've seen things go yeah. ar- awry or things that I saw through some of the advisory work that I was doing, et cetera. So I've definitely seen plenty. The few that I usually pay the most attention to, and that I think are very typical, but also very problematic in product companies and in technology would be number one is, There's so much focus these days on product management moving into this direction of like science, right? It's kind of like everything should be measurable. We, you know, we we need to see the results from every little thing that we do. And there's this very cool kind of mentality of fail fast, but it can also metastasize into something that's actually really bad for a company at the same time. And that's where, you know, you try to only do very super lightweight, superficial improvements to the product because you're trying to get very quick wins that are demonstrable and measurable. And a lot of times what happens is it actually takes you in literally the opposite direction as you should be going with your product. Mm -hmm. You know, it's kind of like you focus on things like, well, if we round the corners and we run it as an A-B test, did we get, you know, 0.01% more people through this flow? And it's like, that's all great. But have you delivered any additional customer value in doing that? Are you actually innovating on your customer's behalf? And the, the clear answer is no. But that's where it's easy to measure outcomes. And so people focus, it's almost like the tails wagging the dog, right? Where like you focus on showing measurable outcomes, which almost takes you away from focusing on the things that actually matter the most, which is really delivering customer value and then deriving your own value back um, as a function of what you're doing there. So I see a lot of companies that are sort of like investing in optimization, thinking that they're innovative. And they're actually doing exactly the opposite of innovating. And, you know, the, the example that I've used on this for, for any non-product people, you know, maybe listening, it's like, if you have too short of a time frame that you're paying attention to things, you're going to make really bad mistakes. You know, if you want to lose weight next, like tomorrow, the best thing to do is not drink any water, right? Like that, you will lose plenty of weight tomorrow, but you can't do that for a year. And in fact, it's actually the opposite, right? If you wanted to lose weight over the course of a year they would advise drink a glass of water before every meal right and the whole orientation just completely flips and i think that what you see is a lot of companies where they're effectively not drinking water and they're focusing on these like totally in- inappropriate things thinking that they're innovative and and they're really preparing themselves to get overtaken by some new competitor working in a garage that they've never heard of before
0: before you go to the second one i love that example because it's also so much harder to articulate to someone in your position why a different type of project is the right one. And so I think that's what's hard about it is that, you know, it's easier to say we're gonna get a lift, like a 10% lift on this number. It's much harder to give you that full chain of whys around why a bigger investment in a different thing that you maybe can't measure as well is gonna be the right thing to do. So that's the sort of interesting paradox that I see is that yes, you wanna do the other stuff, but it's so much harder as a product person to articulate why that's gonna be the, the right choice.
1: Yeah, I mean that's totally right. It's almost like it's a function of laziness to an extent to just say we're just going to do these things because I know that I can get some quick wins out of it. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't do those. You know, there's a reason that growth hacking and everything else exists. Like you you should be optimizing the the business, but don't make the mistake of thinking that pure optimization is somehow going to magically yield innovation. So I think that's kind of like number 1. I'd say number 2 is when companies then try to solve this problem by being visionary they articulate a vision that's so internally focused that it's like they kind of forget about the customer along the way. And so, you know, as an advisor, I would often have these early meetings with a founder and, you know, I'd say, why don't you take 20, 30 minutes and walk me through what this company is all about? You know, tell me about where you're trying to go, what you're trying to get done. And every single one of them, like this is when their eyes lit up, right? They're like, they get to the whiteboard and they're like, Ooh, like I get to tell my story and what I'm all about and stuff like that. And they would articulate these visions that were things like, we're going to get to $300 million of ARR by 2024. Or they'd have a vision like, we're going to upend this industry by applying machine learning in this new way that hasn't been before. And I'm like...
0: It's always AI. $17 trillion in revenue in AI.
1: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It's nice to know that the TAM is there. Like, that's great. But TAM is not a strategy. TAM is not a, a vision for where you're headed. And I think that like, what I always challenge them with is to say, look nobody disrupts an industry directly the way that an industry actually gets disrupted is you solve a customer problem that's existed in that industry so well that customers can't even fathom the idea of going back to the way that it previously was but at the end of the day it's rooted in solving a customer problem and my question to them always is like what's the customer problem you're actually trying to solve why are they underserved right now and it is amazing to me how few Product leaders, founders, et cetera, can actually articulate it in that way. It's like, here's what we're going to do. It's like, no, no, no. Here's what you're going to enable your customers to do. And that reorientation is just so critical that I think that that's like a big mistake. And it just has a lot of downstream effects, you know, in its own right. So that's the second one that I would call attention to. Do I need to give you a third one as well?
0: No, those are <laughs> those those are two good ones. Yeah, we're also totally running out of time. I'm going to have to think on that last one a little bit. I absolutely agree. And it's so interesting. I can just think of so many examples in my past where we probably got that framing wrong or we even started with the customer framing. But then, you know, internal problems just like start to pull you back. And then, you know, you're optimizing for, the sales team wants, or whoever, and then you know you have to like constantly sort of shift yourself back to that mindset of be like, no, like we have to be grounded in the in the customer problem.
1: Totally. Board meetings do it as well. <laughs> it's amazing. To me. I've served as like an observer on a number of boards, and I've always been shocked by how little that conversation ever comes up. It's like, you know, why did we miss the sales numbers here, or why is the retention number what it is there, and things like that. But there's nobody who's asking the question of like, how do we know that we're working on the things right now that in two years are going to solve customer problems in ways that are going to make this company completely different? Show me what kind of like customer success metrics look like. And let's see a dashboard of that. Right. And I think that when you're not pressuring the company in that way, it's like the company has to pressure itself that way to provide that. And, you know, that's in a lot of ways, I think the role of the head of product.
0: Well, Ben, that is a perfect place to stop it. I really appreciate you taking some time to chat and to share your wisdom of having met many product teams and actually putting your words into action.
1: Awesome. Thanks so much for the opportunity. Great to be on the show. You know, it's a really great podcast and I love uh, that you get into the weeds of the reality of how this stuff actually, you know, comes together. So great stuff. Thanks so much, Ben.
0: I try. (laughs) Thanks, Ben.